Hi, and welcome to Cyber Reason's Malicious Life. I'm Ran Levy. Every year, on June 28th, Ukrainians celebrate their Constitution Day, the anniversary of the nation's adoption of a constitution back in 1996. In America, of course, citizens celebrate national holidays by immersing themselves in history. On July 4th every year, you all reread the Declaration of Independence, and on Martin Luther King's Day, each of you spends the whole day reflecting on Dr. King and the injustices against African Americans in this country, both past and present. You all do that, right? Right? Hmm. Unlike in America, Ukrainians use their national holiday as a mere excuse to take a relaxing vacation. The day before Constitution Day in 2017, Ole Derevienko was heading to a country house where he'd spend the long weekend with his family. Derevienko is the founder of Information Systems Security Partners, a cybersecurity lab which in some ways has become the go-to for Ukrainian targets of Russian APTs. Ukraine is targeted a lot by Russia, so the folks at ISSP are probably more deserving of vacations than most of the rest of us. But Ole was mistaken in thinking he would be able to enjoy a relaxing holiday weekend. During his drive north to the countryside that morning of the 27th, his phone began to light up. He had to pull off the highway. Then, as the gravity of the situation became clearer, he ducked into a roadside restaurant to get on his computer. By the afternoon, Ole was calling every executive at every company he knew, telling them to unplug all their computer systems immediately. Shut everything down, whatever the cost. Usually, this isn't an easy pitch to make. Most executives shudder at the idea of shutting down their whole business for any amount of time. Could any cyber incident really outweigh the cost of a few days or even a few hours of lost profit? But what was unique about this cyber incident, and what might have made Ole's job easier, is that it didn't take any cyber expertise to understand that something really bad was happening. Unlike a data leak or an account compromise, the effects were abundantly clear to the naked eye. From Sandworm, a book written by technology journalist Andy Grinberg, quote, When the Revienko emerged from the restaurant in the early evening, he stopped to refuel his car and found that the gas station's credit card payment system had been taken out too. With no cash in his pockets, he eyed his gas gauge, wondering if he had enough fuel to reach his village. Across the country, Ukrainians were asking themselves similar questions. Whether they had enough money for groceries and gas to last through the blitz, whether they would receive their paychecks and pensions, and whether their prescriptions 
would be filled. End quote. Computer systems around the country were utterly disabled from the government right on down to small businesses like gas stations. According to Ole, it was nothing less than a massive coordinated cyber invasion. Ole Derevienko wasn't wrong in describing this as a massive coordinated cyber invasion. But that description only tells half the story because by the evening of that Tuesday in 2017, the national cyber attack against Ukraine had blossomed into an international one, affecting hundreds of countries. What began as a cyber invasion had quickly, really, really quickly transformed into a cyber pandemic. If you're a defender fighting to protect your organization from cyber attackers, you must be successful ending attacks every single time. They only need to be successful once. Cyber Reason reverses the attacker's advantage. Our future-ready attack platform gives defenders the wisdom to uncover, understand, and piece together multiple threats. And the precision focus to end cyber attacks instantly. Cyber Reason ends cyber attacks from endpoints to everywhere. Phase 1. According to the World Health Organization, there are six distinct phases of a pandemic life cycle. The first occurs when a virus begins to take shape in an animal population. Long before any human sneezes, it takes root deep inside of rats, bats, or some other habitable creature. The genetic code passes between hosts, reproducing, and in doing so, mutates to gradually become more dangerous or more contagious. A year before Constitution Day 2017, a ransomware called Petya was spotted in the wild. All of the other ransomwares that were around back then were just basically a program that runs on your machine um, encrypts a bunch of files, and then displays a message that your computer was uh, encrypted. Petya was different. Amit Serpel, formerly of CyberReason, is the Area VP of Security Research for North America at Guardicore. Petya, what Petya was doing is that it was um, basically destroying uh, the boot sector, and it didn't even let you boot into your uh, machine. And basically, it encrypted the drive. And then when you were trying to boot your machine, you'd get a message that your, um, that your entire machine is locked. And in order to unlock it, you need to uh, pay ransom. But with Petya, you didn't even have um, access to, to, to Windows. You couldn't even boot Windows. Petya attacked the very lowest, most fundamental level of a computer. It didn't cause your computer to sneeze. It caused its heart to stop nasty stuff. A year after Petya was first spotted in the wild, it spawned a new variant. A mutation, you could say. It actually looked as if it was a new version of, of the original Petya. Um, but uh, the, the more researchers started looking into it, they realized that there's actually, the, the, the two are not related. And, uh, and then uh, they called it, it was dubbed not Petya. 
different people have different views on whether NotPetya can be considered a true variant of the original virus, as they look very similar to one another, but work differently. The primary difference is their means of spreading. The original virus, Petya, was delivered as a standard attachment in an email. Lots of malware attacks work this way. It's a good way of hacking a specific target, because you can use social engineering to make that email believable. In Petya's case, the email masked itself as a job application. It included a stock photo of a young man and a file pretending to be that young man's job application. The file would have PDF in its name, but in reality it was an executable. An even bigger red flag was that it required admin access to run. If you clicked on it, Windows would warn you that it was going to make changes to your computer. Honest PDFs shouldn't do that. So, as profoundly destructive as it was, Petya was actually rather weak at spreading. Think of it like the Ebola virus. Its newer, superior variant was more like COVID-19. So contagious that even the most secure computers were infected in minutes of coming into contact with it. So contagious that even the act of trying to stop it was more disruptive than actually contracting most other viruses. Which brings us to phase two. Every pandemic has a point at which the virus transfers from one animal to one human before exploding everywhere else. You'll often find that such a place is fertile for the spread of germs, a crowded and unsanitary part of the city, or a marketplace for exotic animal species. Notpetya started off in a place like this, a place where one infection could turn quickly into thousands. It was a nondescript building just off Novokostiantianaviska Street. Quote, on the edge of a trendy Podil neighborhood in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev, coffee shops and parks abruptly evaporate, replaced by a grim industrial landscape. Under a highway overpass, across some trash-strewn railroad tracks, and through a concrete gate, stands the four-story headquarters of Linkos Group, a small, family-run Ukrainian software business. End quote. You'd be hard-pressed to find an uglier building than Linkos Group's HQ. It's a boxy gray building resembling a shipping container, whose only design feature of note is that the third floor is painted in blue. It's flanked on all sides by gray parking lots, gray concrete fencing, and other boxy gray buildings. That company made uh, an accounting platform, sort of like what Quicken is uh, in the U.S., if, if, if I need to make some sort of a comparison. And the way that, that this accounting software worked is basically um, every business entity 
in the Ukraine or even outside or outside Ukraine, every business entity that wanted to do business with Ukraine with regards to paying uh, taxes and all of these things, uh, a lot of them used this software that was made. Uh, this software was called the MeDoc, M-E-Doc. As the go-to accounting software for all Ukrainian companies, MEDoc was much more powerful than most mid-size family-owned businesses. If you imagine Ukraine's economy like a giant web, MEDoc is a node that connects to almost every corner of it. Those of you familiar with the recent SolarWinds breach will know what companies like this are capable of. In the spring of 2017, an attacker breached MEDoc's software servers. The servers, which, like SolarWinds, delivered software updates to clients. They inserted a hidden backdoor, which allowed them a portal to all of the company's customers. That's when they deployed NotPetya. If you drive almost directly and uniformly south from Linkus Group's Kiev headquarters, after six and a half hours, you'll hit the city of Odessa on the northern coast of the Black Sea, where the world's biggest shipping company, Maersk, has an office building. The contrast between those two places couldn't be greater. The Maersk building looks like if Linkosk building got a haircut, a makeover, and a job. It's nine stories tall, sleek, clean, and curvy. And unlike that bleak industrial neighborhood of Kiev, it's surrounded by parks, beaches, and beautiful old houses. On the eve of Constitution Day 2017, there were probably many people making this drive from Kiev to Odessa for vacation. NatPetya made the trip alongside them. It turned out that at Merck's Ukrainian HQ, one finance executive had had IT administrators install MEDoc on just one computer in the whole building. To understand just how contagious and how deadly NotPetya was, we need only consider that one computer. A lot of companies that are doing business with, you know, the country of Ukraine, basically they need to file taxes. They need to have that software installed on their machines so that they could do all of the, all of the uh, uh, tax-related stuff, you know, to, to, to basically pay taxes to the country of Ukraine. What happened was that there were a lot of companies that either had the MEDoc software installed or in some, in some way had computers connected in the same network to uh, computers that had the MEDoc software on them. At a certain point, uh, the malware reached uh, a bunch of machines that weren't necessarily directly connected to, to MEDoc in one shape or form, but they were on the same network with, with a machine that had the MEDoc software on it. Quote, on the afternoon of June 27th, 2017, confused Maersk staffers began to gather at the IT help desk in twos and threes, almost all of them carrying laptops. All across Maersk headquarters, the full scale of the crisis was starting to become clear. 
Within half an hour, Maersk employees were running down hallways, yelling to their colleagues to turn off computers or disconnect them from Merck's network before the malicious software could infect them as it dawned on them that every minute could mean dozens or hundreds more corrupted PCs. Tech workers ran into conference rooms and unplugged machines in the middle of meetings. Soon, staffers were hurling over locked keycard gates, which had been paralyzed by the still mysterious malware, to spread the warning to other sections of the building. End quote. I think that it just got out of control. I don't think that Maersk was, was a target, was an original target. At the very same time, when Ukrainian gas stations and service providers were shutting down, so too were many multinational corporations elsewhere in Europe and around the world. In the World Health Organization's terms, we're long past phase three of the pandemic, when a virus creates clusters inside of one community. We're past community spread, where it spreads in multiple clusters, and international spread, when it breaks out around the world. Not Petya, did Phase 3, Phase 4, Phase 5, and Phase 6 of the pandemic life cycle in one afternoon. At Maersk alone, 17 ports on at least three continents had completely frozen up. It was 9 a.m. in New Jersey when the entry gate to their terminal closed shut. Quote, Soon, hundreds of 18-wheelers were backed up in a line that stretched for miles outside the terminal. One employee at another company's nearby terminal at the same New Jersey port watched the trucks collect bumper to bumper farther than he could see. He'd seen gate systems go down for stretches of 15 minutes or half an hour before, but after a few hours, still with no word from Maersk, the Port Authority put out an alert that the company's Elizabeth Terminal would be closed for the rest of the day. End quote. The thousands of truck drivers that queued up at Maersk terminals worldwide, from New Jersey to Mumbai, carrying food, home goods, and just about anything you can possibly conceive of, had no concept that a single computer in Odessa, Ukraine, was the reason why their day was so sucky. Frankly, Maersk itself didn't have much of a clue either. was a, a brand new pathogen that was very viral, that was very efficient in spreading. I sort of sound like cyber Anthony Fauci right now. It was, uh, it was very efficient in, in spreading, and there was no way to stop it. NotPetya expertly combined two tools to make it more contagious than any one exploit could. The first was Eternal Blue, a tool originally designed by the NSA, leaked earlier in 2017, which had also been exploited by WannaCry by this time. 
Eternal Blue exploited a vulnerability in Windows Server Message Block, or SMB, protocol, allowing NSA agents, and now anybody else who got their hands on it, to deploy whatever code their hearts desired onto Windows networks. The second half of NotPetya's spreading mechanism was Mimikatz, a tool originally designed by a security researcher to demonstrate how unsecurely Windows stores passwords. To explain, we'll use an analogy. Imagine you write all your passwords down in a notebook kept hidden in a locked drawer in your office cubicle. It seems like a good enough way to remember your passwords, since you can always check it and then hide and lock it away when you're done. Mimikatz is like a co-worker who knows where that notebook is and has a copy of the key. It can read the memory of a PC to find, say, the admin credentials for an entire corporate network. So, put together, NotPetya combines Eternal Blue to deploy remote code onto just about any network, and Mimikat to pull credentials for spreading across those networks. And it's all automated. So, once they, uh, once they used these uh, vulnerabilities, it basically allowed them to put, the, to put the malware on this uh, very violent mode, almost like, uh, almost like the virus that we're uh, all experiencing today, the coronavirus, where it basically spreads from one host to another and, 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 destroy, uh, and destroys all the, all the data that exists on the host. How do you avoid contracting such a virus? You could be lucky enough to be running macOS instead of Windows, in which case NotPetya was not relevant to you at all. Or if your computers were updated to the latest version of Windows, you'd already be invulnerable to Eternal Blue. Back in March, shortly after the exploit was leaked, Microsoft patched its corresponding vulnerability. Actually, according to Microsoft's analysis, Windows 10 did a pretty good job at combating NotPetya on its own, just by virtue of its built-in security. It was older versions of the OS that struggled the most. But even fully updated Windows 10 wasn't enough on its own, because all NotPetya needed was one outdated, unpatched computer in a network a launchpad where it could steal the credentials necessary to spread everywhere else. That's how you get from Odessa, Ukraine, to New Jersey and Mumbai in one afternoon. So, in the end, there was only one reliable way to stop the spread. Call it cyber distancing. Sort of like what we've seen with the coronavirus, where they said, well, we want to control the spread, so stop seeing other people, stop interacting with other people. So the equivalent would be to disconnect all of the machines from, um, from the network. As Oled Derevienko sat with his laptop at a roadside restaurant in suburban Ukraine, he called all his friends, pleading with them to distance their computers from the web. Every plug six feet away from a wall outlet. So... You've seen a lot of uh, a lot of, of of companies that were basically telling their employees, 
quickly turn off the machines, disconnect them from the network, and disconnect them from the power outlet just in case. Unfortunately, NotPetya spread faster than the warnings about it could. First within Ukraine, then far beyond. And what happened to those computers that weren't unplugged in time was, well, it was as harmful as viruses can get. A Maersk IT admin, Henrik Jensen, witnessed the destruction from the front lines. Quote, Jensen was busy preparing a software update for Maersk's nearly 80,000 employees when his computer spontaneously restarted. He quietly swore under his breath. Jensen assumed the unplanned reboot was a typically brusque move by Maersk's central IT department. Jensen looked up to ask if anyone else in his open plan office of IT staffers had been so rudely interrupted. As he craned his head, he watched every other computer screen around the room blink out in rapid succession. I saw a wave of screens turning black, 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 he says. The PCs, Jensen and his neighbors quickly discovered, were irreversibly locked. Restarting only returned them to the same black screen. End quote. As nasty as the original Petya was, and as contagious as its successor was, The worst part about both of them was their payload. Both Petya and not Petya are commonly referred to as ransomware, because they look like ransomware. Once a computer contracts not Petya, for example, the screen freezes over and a message is displayed that reads, quote, Oops, your important files are encrypted. If you see this text, then your files are no longer accessible because they have been encrypted. Perhaps you are busy looking for a way to recover your files, but don't waste your time. Nobody can recover your files without our decryption service. We guarantee that you can recover all your files safely and easily. All you need to do is submit the payment and purchase the decryption key. End quote. As you'd expect, below the message are instructions for how to send Bitcoin to a wallet address. What made Petya and not Petya so bad, though, is that all of this was a lie. Petya and not Petya weren't actually ransomware. There was the, the encryption logic, but no decryption logic that I could find. The virus encrypted all the files on its host computer, but there was no mechanism for decrypting any of them. Even if you paid the ransom, even the attackers themselves couldn't reverse the damage they caused. That made NotPetya different from any biological virus that's ever existed. It combined rapid spread with a mortality rate of 100%. It would take months before the full scope of NotPetya's destruction came into view. Thousands of companies, government entities, and utilities were affected, some worse than others. 
between business losses, costs of repair, manpower, time, and legal proceedings, it cost Maersk an estimated $300 million. It cost FedEx around $400 million. Merck, an American pharmaceutical company, was initially estimated to have lost around $300 million, but in regulatory filings later that year, adjusted the figure to $870 million. According to the White House, its total cost to the global economy was $10 billion. That would make NotPetya the single costliest malware in world history. That's it for part one of the NotPetya story. In part two, we'll be picking up in the next stage of our cyber pandemic, the race for a vaccine. Special thanks this episode to Andy Greenberg, whose book Sandworm is the most comprehensive source out there on NotPetya. All the direct quotes you heard in this episode were drawn from that text. Following our previous two episodes on facial recognition technology in the hands of law enforcement, and in particular the story of how the protesters in Belarus used it against violent police officers, we asked you over on Twitter, do you think citizens should use such a technology against law enforcement? The poll's results were quite one-sided. 80% of you said, yes, they should. Although we must acknowledge that this attitude might be more prevalent among the security-oriented people than in the broader population, because as we all know, cybersecurity has deep roots in the hacker community. Nick Baum wrote, quote, this is tough. If police attack civilians unprovoked, then it's a major failure of the police training and leadership. Allowing the public to identify the officers in question could bring them to justice. But would the leadership allow that to happen? I'm on the fence here. End quote. And YP Rainbow VG replied to this, quote, I agree, this is a tough call. Technology should be used equally between law enforcement and citizens alike. This is one of the situations that makes me wonder if technology is helping us by providing the needed evidence or hurting us using the evidence to turn on each other, end quote. And lastly, Mike from Singapore, actually our first listener from Singapore that I'm aware of, he wrote, quote, I hope it will have a psychological effect on the police. Knowing that they can be identified could make them change their behavior. End quote. We live in interesting times, no doubt. For more polls and interesting discussions, follow us on Twitter at at MaliciousLife or follow me at at RanLevy. That's R-A-N-L-E-V-I. 
we also have a new YouTube channel created by our hardworking community manager, Sarah, who also did all the graphics for the various episodes. Search for Malicious Life on YouTube and let us know what you think. Cyberism's Malicious Life is produced by PI Media. Is your organization thinking about creating a podcast? Or maybe it already has one, but it's not as interesting and engaging as you think it can be? We'll make it better. You know what they say. Do what you do best and outsource the rest. Reach out to me via Twitter or email at ran at ranlevy.com. R-A-N-L-E-V-I dot com. Nate Nelson is our senior producer, sound design by Benoha Bali. Thanks to Cyberreason for underwriting the podcast. Learn more at cyberreason.com. See you next episode. Bye-bye. Oh my God. Oh my God.